We appreciate y'all being here. I know it's a, a, a holiday weekend, a weekend in which we remember the people who have given their lives to make us free. As Christians, more than any other people, we understand the power of that. We exist because someone gave their life for us, and that's Jesus Christ. And so I hope, I know that there are some people who are traveling, uh, and so we have less than we usually do here today, and yet this is a good-sized crowd. It's good to, good to see y'all this morning. And I got to tell you, we have a, something to tackle this morning that is difficult. There's a lot here. Um, the last two services have gone a little long, and I feel bad about that. I'm going to try to keep it short, uh, but there's a lot to say. And I hope that I can talk fast enough and I can explain this clearly enough. Pray for me in that. Pray also that you'll be able to focus because this is, this is heavy duty stuff. This is not seeker sensitive. This is not, this is not uh, easy listening. Uh, this is why did God give us the law of Moses and how does it apply to our lives today? So back in 2007, there's an author named A.J. Jacobs, a journalist in New York, I wrote a book called The Year of Living Biblically. And you would think if you saw that title on a bookshelf that it was a Christian book, but it's not. A.J. Jacobs is a secular New Yorker. He's, he's Jewish, but as he says himself, I'm a Jew in the same sense Olive Garden is an Italian restaurant, which I think is pretty funny. Um, he, he, but he decided, let's see what would happen if I lived an entire year living out every single command in the law of Moses. Do you know how many that is? There's 613 commands in the law of Moses in the Old Testament. And he tried to keep every one of them for a full year. So he grew his beard long and shaggy like, uh, like somebody from Duck Dynasty or ZZ Top. Um, he tithed 10% to his local synagogue. He blew a shofar, a ram's horn, at the start of every month, which I'm sure his neighbors really approved of. Um, He even stoned an adulterer, although the stones he used were little pebbles, so it didn't really hurt. And the adulterer was a guy in his 70s who tried to beat him up for it, which I'd love to see video of. But uh, the book became this surprise bestseller and actually sparked a short-lived TV series on CBS. But it makes me wonder, it should make you wonder, why don't we follow all these laws? I mean, shouldn't I have a long shaggy beard, right? Shouldn't I have prayer tassels sticking out of the backside of my shirts? And shouldn't I have the word of God tied to my forehead and my, and my wrist? Shouldn't I sacrifice a bull every time I commit a sin? That's what it says in Leviticus. Why do I mow my yard on Saturdays? If you drive past my house, you'll see me sometimes out there mowing the yard. And it's Saturday, it's the seventh day of the week. We're commanded in the book of Exodus, cease from all your labors on the Sabbath. Why am I tomorrow planning to grill shrimp and bacon and other things? Why do we go to Vernon's catfish? Why do we eat all these foods that are specifically forbidden in the law of Moses? You know, that used to bother me when I was a kid. I, didn't, I hadn't read the entire Bible. I didn't read the whole Bible for myself till I was 19 or 20, but it used to bother me when I was a kid because I knew there were all these laws the Jews followed that we didn't. And I, I wondered what made the difference and why do we follow some, but not others? And then when I got to be an adult, it really started to bother me because my secular friends and and others who I knew who weren't believers in Jesus would say to me, you Christians are inconsistent. You're hypocrites. You'll you'll criticize people for their sexuality or for ways that that they go against the word of God and the Bible, but you don't follow all the commands in the Bible either. I mean, someone had told them, I doubt any of my secular friends had actually read the Bible, but they knew there were commands in the Bible, for instance, that say, you don't wear a garment made of mixed fabric. Well, you know, we wear polyester. We wear clothes that are 50-50. Why do we do that? 
Or they'll say, hey, I heard that the Bible says that if you've got a rebellious son, you should take him out and stone him to death. How come you don't do that? There'd be a lot of dead teenage boys, wouldn't there? (laughs) So why don't we do that? And it really does hurt our witness. So what we're going to do today, and this is, why, this is why this is such a heavy sermon, why it's going to take me a while and I'm going to try to shorten it, but three things we need, to, we need to do today. We need to understand what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give this law? Because it's not what you think. Secondly, we need to talk specifically about why don't we follow every command in the scriptures? Why do we follow some but not others? And third, what would it take for us to truly live biblically? All right, so pick up. Exodus chapter 19, verse one, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So three months after they were released from slavery, it says, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So you have to picture the scene in Exodus 19. They're in this vast desert, the Sinai Peninsula. There's a series of mountains out there, not mountains like we see in the Rocky Mountains or the Alps or the Andes with these jagged snowy peaks, but, but mountains nonetheless. And there's this one, Mount Sinai. This is where Moses first met God when he was tending his sheep in the burning bush. This, mo- this mountain is now shaking. The ground around is quaking. There's lightning, there's thunder, there's smoke pouring out of the top of the mountain like it's an active volcano. There's this loud trumpet blast that you can hear first in the background, and then it, it's just getting louder and louder and louder, like the world's most, uh, most strenuous trumpeter is blowing and won't stop. And God says, okay, Israelites, stay away from the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. And I'm thinking, if I'm an Israelite, I'm not getting anywhere near that mountain. The Lord God is there, and I'm, right, I'm not righteous, and he is. Even Moses, according to Hebrews, is trembling from head to foot as he approaches that mountain. This man in his 80s climbs to the top and God gives him the law. Chapter 20, which we won't read, is the 10 commandments. Even if you didn't grow up in church, you heard of the 10 commandments. This is where it comes from. And then chapters 21 through 23, God gives the rest of the law to Moses. God gives him laws like, here's what you do in cases of violent crime. Here's what you do if there are property disputes. Here's how you take care of the people on the bottom rung of society, people who can't care for themselves, people who would otherwise be exploited. These are the sacrifices I want you to maintain. These are the festivals I want you to keep. And by the way, Moses, when you get to the promised land, the land I have set apart from you, the land I promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, There are people living there now who are wicked, evil people. They are under my judgment. I'm gonna send an angel to drive them out. Some of them will be stubborn and stay. Don't make a treaty with them. If they don't flee from you, then you have to kill them. And Moses hears the law. He comes down to the bottom of the mountain. He speaks to the people. The people are gathered. Can't wait to, what does God have to say to us? Moses tells them and they immediately respond. We will do everything the Lord has said because we have no hope apart from him. So Moses kills a bull and he makes this ritual where he sprinkles them with the blood of this animal as a way of saying, I am consecrating you to the Lord. And then this stunning thing happens. God says, okay, Moses, bring 
Aaron, your brother, and the 70 elders of Israel representing the people come up to me. And they do. They climb to the top of this mountain. God is waiting there for them. They see a physical manifestation of God. They do not see his face, but they see that there is a being on a throne sitting in this unapproachable light in this floor that is covered in sapphire. So bright blue. And they eat a meal in his presence, which is a symbolic way of God saying, I have brought you into my family. You are mine now. So what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give this to Moses? See, there's a misconception, and this is something a lot of Christians believe. I hear people say things that make me realize this is what we think. This idea that, okay, so in the Old Testament, God gave the law to Israel and said, okay, this is how you get saved. You follow these commands, and then I'll, break you, I'll bring you into my kingdom, and you can go to heaven. And then they didn't, and so God had to go to plan B, which was Jesus, and Jesus cleaned up the mess by dying for our sins. That's not the way it goes. The purpose of the law was never to save people. And the reason I know this is because God says it himself in verse four. He says, you've seen what I did for you. I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He's talking about the Exodus itself and how they were freed from slavery. Remember, God did all of that before he ever gave them a single commandment. God wasn't saying, obey these commands and I'll save you. He saved them first. Salvation was by grace even back then. So what is the purpose of the law? Look at what he says in verses five and six. There are three things. Number one, he says, you shall be my treasured possession. Keep my law so you can be my treasured possession. Now he's not saying, if you follow these laws, I will treasure you because he already does. What he's saying is, if you want to enjoy being mine, if you want to love me back, this is the way to do it. Now, when I first got married 29 years ago, I had a lot to learn. You're sitting there thinking, well, yeah, duh, Jeff. But I didn't realize that. I went into marriage thinking I pretty much understood what a woman wants from her husband. You go ahead and laugh, all right? Because it was ridiculous. But I'd seen movies, I'd read books. I thought that all women were the same. All women, what they really want is a man who will speak kind words to them, who will praise them uh, elaborately and, and vociferously and, and constantly and eloquently and make a big public show of what a great woman she is. I thought that was, that's the key to a woman's heart. And that would have been great because I'm good at that. I'm good with words and I've got lots of great things to say about Carrie. That's, that would have been easy for me, but that's not what she wanted. That's not the kind of person she is. She does not like to be made a big deal of. A little bit of that goes a long way with her. And after that point, it becomes very, very embarrassing. In fact, I learned early in marriage, this look she'd get on her face when I was a little too mushy-gushy and it'd be like kind of similar to when you're about to throw up, right? That's just not what she wanted. On the other hand, if I wanted to show her love, I would do my part to keep our house looking good. I would be patient and gentle and kind. She did not want some alpha male swaggering around yelling and screaming and dominating things. I would be uh, someone who spent time with the kids instead of the typical dad who just kind of tuned them out. I would, I would actually listen when she had something important to say. You know, put down your phone, turn off the TV, pay attention. These are all things I am bad at, okay? Being very honest with you. These are all things I'm still not good at but I've learned if I really want to love my wife, that's how I do it. And she had to do the same with me. There are ways in which I was completely different than she thought I was going to be because the only man she really knew was her dad. And I'm way different than her dad. And if you're married, you know the same battle, right? 
Well, the thing God has done here is he said, I'm gonna love you no matter what. This is not an ultimatum, but I'm just telling you, if you wanna love me back, here are the ways. See, God's word, the law, was never meant to be a test. Prove to me your righteousness. No, it was come enjoy a love relationship with me. Be my treasured possession. This is how. Secondly, secondly, he says, the purpose of the law was to make Israel a kingdom of priests. Now we have a hard time with that because we hear the term priest and we think the leader of a Catholic or an Episcopal congregation, right? Those are, those are Christian denominations that call their clergy priests and they wear certain priestly garb, right? And that's what we picture when we hear the term. But the priests of Israel were different. They didn't lead little congregations. Their job was to represent God before the people. So the high priest of Israel would wear literally a garment made of the same fabric that they made the curtain out of that separated the tabernacle from the Holy of Holies, where God dwelt. And it was a symbolic way of saying, wherever the high priest go in his priestly function, he is representing God. So if you're out there and you're cheating on your wife or you're, you're uh, abusing your kids or you're cheating your neighbor or whatever, you're sinning and you see the high priest coming, you, it's a reminder, oh my goodness, I live in the midst of a holy God. I need to get right. On the other hand, the high priest also represented the people before God. It swung both ways. The high priest would wear in his high priestly duties an apron, they called it an ephod, that had a a chest piece with 12 different colored stones across it. Those represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was a symbolic way of saying, when I go and stand before God, I am the representative of every Israelite. And so that high priest on the day of atonement, once a year in the fall, would go through that curtain into the holy place, the only person who could and only once a year and make an atonement for the sins of the people. That was his job. Now, what does it mean for Israel to be a kingdom of priests? It means that in the same way the priest functioned among the people of Israel, that was the way the nation of Israel was to function among the nations of the world. So Israel was supposed to represent God to those nations and say, this is who our God is. Come, come see him. At the same time, they were to represent those nations before God and to say, Lord, we are bringing the nations of the earth to you. Now, did that happen? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. There was a third, a third uh, purpose of the law, and that was that they would be a holy nation. Again, that word holy is something we hear a lot and we don't really know what it means. Literally, it means to be set apart, to be different. And Israel was supposed to be different from all other nations. Number one, because they worshiped one God. All of the nations worshiped gods of the sky, gods of the sea, gods of the sun, gods of the harvest, gods of every little possible potential thing. Only Israel said, no, there's only one God and he's righteous and he holds us accountable. Only Israel believed that it was wrong for a man to cheat on his wife. Can you believe that? In that era, every other nation believed it was wrong for a woman to cheat on her husband, but men could do whatever they wanted. Israel came along and said, no, our God says that the double standard is no more. Both should be faithful to one another. Only Israel taught that if you were poor, it was the responsibility of the righteous men and women of your community to help you out of your poverty. If you were a widow, it was their responsibility to make sure you were provided for. If you were an orphan, it was their responsibility to take care of you. That was the sign of a righteous nation, a righteous community, a righteous family was a concern for the poor. Every other country said, if you're strong, that means God loves you more. So you use your strength and take advantage of your poor neighbor if you want to, because the strong will survive. It was sort of a Darwinism long before Darwin existed. So Israel's purpose was 
to be God's treasure possession, his priestly nation, his holy nation that would shine a light to the Gentiles and bring them into the family of God. Did it happen? The answer is sometimes it did. Some of you know, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. Do you know what Psalm 119 is about? It's David saying over and over and over again in poetic form, how much he loves the law of the Lord. That's something you and I would never consider. We, we sing songs about how much we love God. We don't sit around singing, Lord, I love that you told me thou shalt not kill. I love that you told me thou shalt not take my name in vain. David did that. And, and the Israelites would sing that Psalm in their worship on a regular basis. Why? Because there were some in the nation of Israel who followed the commands of God, the laws of God in such a way that they loved him. And the law gave them the outlet by which to express that love. And so you see, there are people in the Old Testament era, there are stories, little stories here and there of Gentiles coming into the family of God. We're talking about Rahab, Ruth. If you don't know these stories, look them up. They're fascinating. We're talking about the queen of Sheba, Naaman, a Syrian general, Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon, Darius, the emperor of Persia, both became believers through the ministry of Daniel. Even in the New Testament era, Jesus arrives on the scene and there are Gentiles in Israel who've become believers in Yahweh, the God of the Jews, including Cornelius, a Roman centurion in Acts chapter nine becomes a follower of Christ. But before that, he was a Gentile believer in Jesus. Why? Because there were enough Jews who lived out the law, who were royal priests, who were a holy nation, that some were drawn to him. But overall, the nation of Israel did not fulfill God's purpose. Just like if God had made a covenant with the United States of America, we would have failed him too. The Israelites over time, over and over again, they exploited the poor. They cheated their neighbors. They got involved in misconduct. They engaged in sexual immorality. And most of all, they constantly chased after foreign gods. And so in, in the end, they lost, they broke that covenant. They lost their nation. And then by the time Jesus came along, the, the Israelites, his fellow Jews had lost their political power. And so their determination was, we are gonna be so extra faithful. We're gonna make up for the sins of our fathers, but they overcorrected. Whereas the fathers had been unfaithful to the law, the Jews of Jesus's time were obsessed with it. They didn't worship God, they worshiped the law. They didn't worship God, they didn't shine the light to the Gentiles, they were obsessed with racial purity and pride. Several years ago in 2014, I, I went to Israel for the first time and it's always a mind-blowing experience. If you ever get the chance, I highly recommend it. But one, one of the days we were there, our guide who was a, a Texan like us, but had been to Israel many times, he took us to a place called Mia Shiram. And this is a little neighborhood uh, just outside the old city of Jerusalem, so a suburb. This small neighborhood is the neighborhood where the Haredim live. Those are the ultra-Orthodox Jews. You've seen them on TV. The men have the, the black hats and black suits and the long side curls. Women wear their head coverings. And, and they're, they're, it's a very distinctive community. They live a very different kind of life. And as we're walking through this neighborhood and he's talking to us, he sees this young man coming towards us and he flags him down and he says, can we ask you a few questions? We're Americans. We'd like to know more about your life. And it turns out this young man was actually American himself. He was born and raised in Brooklyn. He had moved to Jerusalem to study the Talmud. Now, what's the Talmud? 
So you take the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. They call it the Torah. You take those first five books, the law of Moses. Over the centuries, the rabbis have spent hours and hours debating, studying, meditating upon the law, the 613 commands of the law of Moses, and trying their best to figure out how to apply those laws to every conceivable possible scenario that could ever come up for a devout Jew. So that you would never have to guess what to do. It's right there in the Talmud. You can imagine how long this book is. I'll just give you an example. Uh, as we talked to this young man, we found out that if you live in Meashuram, most people who live there don't turn their lights on on Saturdays because that's the Sabbath. So at, at sundown Friday, from then until sundown Saturday, you have your lights off because to flip a light switch is to ignite something. It's no different than turning on it than, than lighting a fire and lighting a fire specifically in the Talmud stated as work. And, and then there are arguments and debates. Now that we're in more modern times, there's the ability to set a timer on your lights so that you won't have to physically do anything for your lights to come on. Is that still a sin or is that allowed? If you're walking out in the street and you know that the house ahead of you, it's night, it's Friday night, the Sabbath has begun. You know that there's a house on the street ahead of you that has a motion sensor. Should you veer around that so that it won't turn on their light? Or if you walk past it, is it their sin and not yours? If you're hungry, is it okay to open the refrigerator door knowing that that will turn a light on, right? These are the kinds of things that they, they worry about and, and wonder about and argue about and debate about. And then along comes Jesus. By the way, just an interesting side note, we asked this young man, so what is your, what is your goal in life? And he said, well, I, I just wanna study the Talmud. He said, if, if I had my way, I'd marry someone rich. Somebody, some woman with a rich dad so that I would never have to get a job and I could just study Talmud all day long. That's what it means to be righteous in his eyes. And, and our, our guide said, you know, what do you think of the other Jews in, in Israel and in the world who uh, are still believers in God, but who don't follow the path that you follow? And he smirked and he said, they're no better than Christians. And so our guide said, how do you think people like him who pretty much the same mentality existed in Judaism 2,000 years ago. How do you think people like him reacted when along comes this, this rabbi, this self-styled rabbi from Nazareth, who's ragtag, who has this band of misfit followers, who doesn't have any education or any qualifications, comes along and says things like, you know, you don't need to follow the, the dietary laws anymore. Mark 9.17 or 7.19, all foods are now clean. And, and says, God didn't make man for the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath as a gift to man. So if I, my disciples want to walk through a grain field and, and grab heads of grain and eat them, that's not harvesting. And even if it is, who cares? The Sabbath was supposed to be a gift, not a restriction. Jesus praised Gentiles for their faith. He said, I, I've, I see more faith in this Roman centurion or this Syrophoenician woman than I do in any Israelite I know. And, and worst of all, in the eyes of these uh, religious leaders, he pointed to the temple in the presence of his disciples and said, the, the, the temple of God in Jerusalem, the whole center of Israelite worship is gonna be destroyed. Not one rock will be left on top of another. Is it any wonder they wanted to kill him? 
And along comes Paul in Jesus' wake and says that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we don't need to follow the law of Moses anymore. We have freedom from that. And those who eat whatever they want have actually more faith than the people who try to stick to those old laws. And those who say you have to get your son circumcised, they're wrong. In fact, they're a messenger of Satan. They're not from God. Paul says clearly the law was never meant to save us. So back to that question. Why do we follow some parts of that law, but not others? Why do we still follow the Ten Commandments, for instance, but not other parts of the law of Moses? John Calvin did us a great favor. You may be familiar with him, theologian, reformer from five, 600 years ago. He classified the laws of the Old Testament and said there are three different categories they fall into. And I wanted to share those with you. Number one, there are civil laws, three kinds of Old Testament laws. Number one, the civil law, those are laws that govern how to, how to run a nation, how to, how, to, how to administer a society. So these are the laws that tell you this is what merits capital punishment. And if you steal someone's goat or oxen, here's, what you, here's how you pay them back. Uh, these are the laws that have to do with, with society, you might say. We see, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 5, the apostle Paul, by the way, a man who was a Pharisee himself, had always, always loved the law of God. But in 1 Corinthians 5, he writes to the Corinthian church and he says, I've heard a rumor that a member of your church is sleeping with his own stepmother. How can you people allow this? Now in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18, there's that, situa that exact situation is mentioned. Here's what you do in that case. Leviticus says, take them both out and put them to death, stone them to death. But Paul writes and says, take these two put them out of the church. Don't have anything to do with them. Let them know that you're praying for them to repent, but don't you treat them like they're walking with God because they're not. Now, why does Paul specifically disobey what the Old Testament says? Because he recognizes that was a law that was civil, that was written for a nation that no longer exists. Those civil laws don't apply to us today. Number two, there are ceremonial laws. These are the sacrifices, the festivals, the cleanliness laws. Here's the things you can wear and can't wear. Here's the things you can eat and can't eat. These are the laws that were specifically designed to prepare the Israelites to approach God. They were the, the laws that said, you have to be pure to be in my presence. And if you're not pure, you, you just need to wait. You don't come into my presence without a pure heart and a pure soul. Now, why don't we follow those anymore? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, how does Jesus fulfill the law? I guarantee you, nobody who heard him say those words understood what he was talking about. It was only long after Jesus died and rose again and the Holy Spirit had come that the church finally started to go, oh, now I get it. And it says in Hebrews that Jesus is the fulfillment of the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. It doesn't say it that way. Here's the way it says it. It says, Jesus is our once and for all high priest. So we don't need a priest anymore to stand between us and God and say, okay, you're forgiven. Okay, God, forgive them because Jesus has done that. And Jesus is our once and for all sacrifice. So we don't need to go sacrifice a bull or a goat. As I always say, I've got a cat. If you want to sacrifice something, I've got a cat. I'd be glad to give you. But we don't need to do that anymore. Okay, easy cat lovers. We don't need to do that anymore. 
because Christ has died for our sins once and for all. And that's why Hebrews 4.16 says we can boldly approach the throne of grace. If you were an Old Testament Israelite and you heard me say that, you would gasp in horror because no Israelite would ever say to himself, yeah, I can walk into the presence of God anytime I want. And yet we can. Why? Because we're more moral than than the Old Testament Jews? Not even close. No, it's not because of anything in us. It's because Christ has made us worthy. It's because when God looks at us, he looks at us through the veil of the blood of Christ that makes us pure because his righteousness has been transferred to us. Because because he has done that for us, we don't need to circumcise our male children anymore because that outward sign doesn't matter. It's what's inward that counts. Because of what Jesus has done, we don't have to worry about is this activity right or wrong on the Sabbath day? In fact, this is why the Christians first started worshiping on Sundays instead of Saturdays. They said, well, that doesn't matter anymore, but this is the Lord's day. This is when Christ rose from the dead. Don't you see? The law was never meant to save, and now we understand that Christ has fulfilled those parts of the law that had to do with making yourself worthy. And then the third category is the moral laws of God. These are the parts of the law of Moses that have to do with living a good life, with how you treat your neighbors, with how you honor the Lord. And if you're wondering, okay, when I'm reading the Old Testament, how do I know what's a moral law, what's a ceremonial law, what's a civil law? Because I got, got to tell you, that, that came from John Calvin. That, those categories aren't specifically spelled out in Scripture. How do you know? Well, two things. Number one, we have the Holy Spirit. They didn't back then. God lives in you. If you're a child of God, God lives in you. His spirit is inside of you. And the spirit of God, whenever you face a situation, you don't know what to do. If you're walking with the Holy Spirit, he will bring to mind the commands of the word of God that apply to that situation. And he will tell you what to do. Secondly, we have the words of Jesus who said all the commands of scripture are summed up in these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. So in other words, is it good to memorize scripture? Absolutely. But if you never memorize a single command of the Bible, but you do your best every day to get in touch with God so that you're walking with the Holy Spirit. And if everything, if everything you do, you think to yourself, is this honoring to God? Is this putting my neighbor ahead of myself? If you do those two things, you're gonna make the right decision. This is how you're going to know what is a moral law, how to obey the word of God. And that's why we don't need a Christian Talmud, a book that gives us specific instructions. And that's why it's not useful for us as Christians to sit around and debating about whether that guy's listening to that music is okay or permissible or not, or whether that woman should wear that outfit or not. That's between her and the Lord. That's between him and the Lord. Let them follow the Holy Spirit and you do what God's called you to do. The moral law was not given for us to judge others. It was not given for us to prove our righteousness. It was given as a gift from God to say, if you want to love me, this is how. And in the process, you're going to experience grace. You're going to experience joy. You're going to experience freedom. Because let's face it, God knows more about life than we do. Believe it or not, the laws of God are for our good. Even the ones that are hard, especially the ones that are hard. And when you follow those laws, you look back on the other side and say, I'm so much happier than I was when I was doing things my way. So what do we have to do to live biblically? And then we're done. 
Let's go back to those three purposes of the law I told you about earlier. To live biblically means, number one, we pursue a love relationship with God. Just like if you were to get married or if you are married, you don't just spend a a couple of hours with your your intended spouse per month, do you? And yet we in, in the church today consider someone who comes to church two or three times a month a really devout Christian. But if that's all you're doing to love the Lord more, you're missing the point. Devote yourself, devote yourself more than anything else to increasing your love for God. That should, be, that should be the pursuit of your life. And if you don't know how to do that, there's, there's, a, there's a lack of instruction within the church on how to become a disciple, how to grow in faith. And if you need some instruction, some advice, how do I, how do I love the Lord more? How do I grow in my faith? Come talk to me, come talk to Alan, come talk to any of our ministers or your life group leader or any Christian you know who you see something in their life that you're missing. But pursue that love relationship with God. I promise you, you will never regret anything you do specifically for the purpose of loving Jesus more. Number two, to live biblically means to be a priest to those around you. Did you know you are called to the priesthood? Did you know that? Let me prove it to you. First Peter 2, 9. But you, that's us, Christians, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That means that no matter what you do for a living, you're a student, you're a teacher, you're a homemaker, you're a lawyer, you're, a, you're an architect, you're a, a pipe fitter, you're a a ditch digger, whatever you do for a living, your primary identity, your primary calling is to be a priest of the almighty God. And that means every day you wake up and you think my number one job today is to represent God before everyone I meet, that my Christian friends would be encouraged by the way that I live and the way that I treat them, that my non-Christian friends would see in me something that they don't see in the rest of the world and that I would be a priest for them in interceding for them with the Father and praying for them and bringing them, hopefully, God willing, to salvation. Do you do that? Is that how you live? Do you take that responsibility seriously? That's what it means to live biblically. And by the way, it ties in really well with the idea of transforming relationships, doesn't it? Because every relationship matters. Number three, to live biblically means to be a city on a hill. And this comes from the words of Jesus. Jesus in Matthew 5 14 says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You've probably heard that if you've been in church at all or you've read the Bible. You probably don't know that the you in Matthew 5 is a plural you. If you you translated it correctly, it would be y'all are a city on a hill. Y'all are the light of the world. Now, why is that important? I'm not just trying to say we're smart down here in the South. What I'm, the reason I bring that up, we're not just individual priests walking around doing the will of God. We're supposed to be the part of something collective called the church, and the church matters. And not just First Baptist Conroe. I believe this church matters deeply. I I hope I'm here the rest of my life. God's doing great things here. God will do great things here. But it's also the Vineyard Church. It's also Grand Central Church. It's also Sacred Heart Catholic. It's also First United Methodist. It's also the Lutherans and the Presbyterians and the Assembly of God and all the non-denominational churches. And it's also uh, all the Iglesia Bautistas and all the other Spanish-speaking churches. And it's all the African-American churches. And it's every church 
that preaches Christ crucified, Christ risen from the dead. That's how God is getting his work done in the world. So our question that we need to ask ourselves is, am I being part of, am, am I helping my local body of believers be a city on a hill by contributing financially, prayerfully, my gifts and talents, following my calling? Am I praying for all the churches in my community? Am I supporting my brothers and sisters in increasing the unity of God's church? Am I doing everything I can to make my church and all the churches of our community as strong as they possibly can be? Because that's how God does his work in the world. And I've got good news for you. The good news is we're going to win. Not us, not, not because of us. We're going to win because the one we follow the one who died for our sins, defeated our sin at the cross, the one who defeated death in the empty tomb is gonna be the king of the world someday. He's coming back to rule and to reign. There is nothing in heaven or on earth, nor ever will be, that can stop him. When we sang Christ be magnified, I got excited because I thought about it. Every atom on creation someday will magnify Jesus. And we get to be there for that. So don't get discouraged. I know sometimes it seems like the church is getting slapped around. Sometimes it seems like the church deserves it. But in the end, we're on the winning side. Isn't that good news? So let's live biblically, joyfully.